I'm Spencer Levy, and this is The Weekly Take. On this episode, we're stretching our perspective on the changing nature of the workplace, a trend that's been accelerated by the COVID-19 pandemic. We're talking about flexible space. This isn't new. You know, what flexible space provides is that new skin over top of an old chassis. But what really is new is now this is a requirement. That's Andrew Kupek, who runs HANA, CBRE's wholly owned flexible office subsidiary, flexibly joining us from his home in New Jersey. What's really changed is the scale at which we can now work flexibly uh, because we've been forced into this experiment. And that's Georgia Collins, who oversees HANA's client solutions team serving occupiers at locations across America and overseas. Georgia joins us from her home in Northern California. It's a coast-to-coast conversation with leaders of an international company that's now working through an office space evolution, reinventing the flexible office amid disruption. That's right now on The Weekly Take. Welcome to The Weekly Take. And I'm delighted to be joined by both Andrew Kupek, who is the CEO of HANA. Andrew, welcome. Thank you, Spencer. And Georgia Collins, Executive Vice President of Client Solutions. Great to have you here. Always a pleasure, Spencer. Well, Andrew and Georgia, tell us who you are, what you do, and Andrew, perhaps starting with you. Sure. HANA, just so you know, means work in Hawaiian, in case you're wondering where we came up with that crazy name. Um, But, you know, essentially what HANA does is provide flexible workspace, particularly geared towards the Fortune 1000 and an enterprise clientele. And we deliver it in a a little bit different fashion than what you see in the marketplace. Our whole market thesis is we're partnering with owners and occupiers and sitting right in the center and and, uh, helping them navigate this changing world of work. And quite a few changes afoot for sure. And Georgia, before we go into those changes, why don't you tell our audience who you are and what you do? Sure. So I really spend the majority of my time working Um, both with our enterprise clients, ensuring that we're building the right product for them, we're thinking about our location strategy relative to the places they want to be, and even the way we put together our solutions for them in any one place so that it meets their needs. And then I work with our landlord clients on the other side to make sure that we're not just thinking of HANA as the flex space, but also as an amenity in the building for them so that they can think not just about how they fill it with clients who want shorter term leases, but also how it serves tenants further up in the stack who may have traditional leases who are in need of flexibility over the term or even just you know a meeting space every now and then that they may not have in their own space. Well, Georgia, obviously we've seen a lot of changes in the last few months. Some people have suggested the future of office has changed completely. Some people have said that flex office has changed completely. Well, why don't we ask the expert, Georgia, what's changed in the last couple of months? What's changed? Uh, you know, I, I actually think that not as much has changed as people think it has. The idea of working flexibly is not something that's new. There are organizations that have embraced flexibility 15, 20 years ago and have been working this way for some time. But there's a whole part of the industry that actually that isn't as familiar with because they've been reluctant to test that. They thought that it wouldn't work for a variety of reasons, whether it was a job function or a concern about trust, about whether people would be effective, whether they could be productive working from different places. And so what's really changed is the scale at which we can now work flexibly uh, because we've been forced into this experiment. And all of those people who may have been reluctant or somewhat skeptical of whether it could work have kind of been proven wrong to some degree. And so I think a lot of conversations in corporate boardrooms and within real estate teams right now is, 
oh, okay, this works. Now what? What does it mean now for how we need to reshape our portfolio, for how we need to support our people, for the expectations we're setting for those people about what things will look like when we go back to normal? Personally, I'm really excited about it because I've spent a good portion of my career trying to convince people that we're going in this direction. Um, and all of a sudden, we've kind of leapfrogged into that future. Spencer, I have to jump in. I got, I got to say something before you ask a question, though. Um, the other piece that I think has changed is the heightened awareness of the need for what I just call kind of a new skin on top of a real old chassis or a real old operating model that every occupier is dealing with right now and to some extent every landlord is dealing with. And so this isn't new, you know, what flexible space provides is that new skin over top of an old chassis. But what really is new is now this is a requirement. This is something that as you reoccupy in a COVID environment and post-COVID, as you think about utilization of your space, as you think about all these pieces coming together, to simply run your workspace requires a whole lot of things, technology services, great analytics, and all that has to be bundled together quickly. And so we're just having conversation after conversation of that's what's really changed is the heightened awareness. And I think Georgia was getting to that too, of landlords and, and occupiers that really need help in thinking through this. And that's what we're doing. Well, Andrew, you are the former COO of Zipcar, and the term that a lot of people use for Zipcar and, and other services like it is disruptor, uh, sort of taking away the old, bringing the new, and you just use the term putting a new skin on, a, on an old chassis. Do you really think that Flexspace is a disruptor in the model of Zipcar, or is it an enhancer to what's already there? You know, I think they're a little bit one and the same, and hear me out on this for a few minutes. So Zipcar... Again, great example of placing a nice skin, a nice technology and services layer on top of what's really an existing product that's hard to change. And let me go, let me go through that for a minute. You can't rebuild or redesign a car. You're, you're not the auto manufacturer. You're not the OEM in the case of Zipcar. So you're, you're dealt with a base product that you really have to say, what can I do? What can I innovate around? You can't really redo all the interior and make it cool and fun and hip if that's not what came out of the box from the manufacturer. And yet you have to deliver a better experience. And how do you do that? You have to do it with technology, certainly. But the trick that most people fall into is that it's a tech platform or it's purely tech. Tech is absolutely at the heart of a lot of this. But it's really the services you wrap around the technology. And Zipcar is just a great example of disrupting a service model with the right parts of technology injected to really reinvent what was otherwise a fairly cumbersome process. And I think it's a great analog for HANA. What we're building and what the flexible space industry, for those who are going to survive, are going to build is really that skin that comes over top but operates a very good, sound business underneath. And that's where the focus really is. I think we can move beyond the technology to the human experience. And in addition to your current role, Georgia, you used to help lead uh, CBRE's host offering, which is all about experience. Tell us about how that blends into the HANA business model. Sure. And maybe if I may, I might start even further back because prior to my role with on the host team and our experience services, I was part of our workplace strategy consulting team. And in my mind, the way the conversations we were having with occupiers at that time was really around how do we create great environments that our people want to be in and in which they thrive and they get great work done. 
And originally that conversation was almost wholly focused on space. What kind of space did we need to build in what proportions in order to drive great outcomes? And increasingly over time, we realized that it wasn't enough just to build great space. We also had to operate it intentionally in how we wanted people to use it. We needed to support people in that regard. And so when CBRE launched Host, it was really to deal with the operational piece that that kind of that skin, that layer on top of the physical space that Andrew was just talking about. And then from a perspective of HANA, we're just doing that in a different way. So whether you own your own space, own or lease your space, we can operate that really well in accordance with your values and your culture and your aspirations for how you want your people to be in that space. Or whether you have increasingly more of your portfolio in Flex, but you wanna have that same kind of experience in our space as you do in your own space, then HANA creates a wrapper around all of that so we can provide the space, the service, the technology that you may provide in your own space just as a package for you. Well, let's talk about that physical space for just a moment because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to subtly push back on uh, Andrew, you, and Georgia just a little bit. Not much has changed. Well, there is one thing that I think most people think has changed, and that is the density of space, about people being next to one another in close confines. How have you approached that issue in your current and then future designs of HANA space? Andrew. What our occupier clients kept asking for was, give me some space and I want to consume that space in a couple different ways. I want to consume it with a small, quick team, give it to me pre-built with all the trimmings and let's just take you know five to 10 seats and we're good to go. But as you move into what most of the larger occupiers are asking for, they're actually asking for a half a floor, a full floor, and they want to configure it to some of their needs. And this gets to your density question, which I'm going to get to. The way we have always approached offering our product and service and our space to our clients is we price it on a per square foot because we know that every client is going to want to consume that space differently. They might want to have a bit more of distance between their individuals. They might want to go A and B teams. There might be a whole number of ways they want to configure their space. It's the same business model for us. So when it comes to how have we pivoted away from how we design, how we offer our products, we haven't had to. There are operational changes we've made and we can get into those to make sure that we're cleaning the space more frequently. We're advising our clients on how to reoccupy the right way. But we really started with a great thesis that has held through this COVID period that we're pretty proud of. I mean, I might add, you know, density is not space alone. Density is number of people in space. And that is an occupancy question, not a physical space question. I mean, there is a component piece probably of how many desks do you put in the space with a presumption of occupancy. Ultimately, um, I, I've always said that really good workplaces should kind of behave like a sponge. Um, they can accept you know, a little bit of water or a fair amount of water before you need to wring them out. And I think of workplaces that way too, that if you design something that, that kind of baseline workplace, you can accommodate five people, 10 people, 15 people, maybe even 20 people before you start to exceed what is an acceptable density. And a lot of that is about how you choose to manage occupancy. Well, Georgia, given your deep experience in the workplace in so many different capacities, the word wellness is not new to you, but it is new to a lot of other people. And it is now rising to the level of sustainability, security, and other things. How does the word wellness play into the HANA offering? 
Just to make it kind of simple, because we were packing a lot of stuff into wellness right now. And the way I think about it in kind of my own personal terms is that wellness is about being safe. Like I feel comfortable and safe in an environment, sane and happy. Um, and there are lots of component pieces that go into safe, sane, and happy in all work environments. But from a HANA perspective, the safety aspect during this COVID time in particular is around some of the operational changes that we've made that, that Andrew alluded to. So making sure that we've got standard protocols, um, a lot of those kind of operational procedures that make that environment safe and therefore I feel comfortable in. From a sanity perspective, I think of sanity as um, things like access to natural light, variety of workspace, the ability to move around, the ability to sit stand, like all of those decisions that we've made about HANA's physical product and then the way we configure that space um, speaks to my level of sanity because I, I have that kind of variety. I have, you know, biophilia in the space. I have green space. I have views. I have light. All of those things keep me sane. From a happiness perspective, that's really like, I'm happiest when I can do my best work and I do my best work when I can focus on it. And I'm not distracted by all of the other things that are happening around me. I don't have to figure out the technology in the meeting room. I don't have to figure out where my mail package went. That's the service component of how we think about HANA. And so we really bring that elevated service, that kind of hospitality offering so that we can strip out all of the things that I refer to as kind of life and work admin so that my focus can really be when I'm at work on my work and on the people I work with. Let's go back to a word that we've now probably used four times during this conversation and it's operational. Now I'm a capital markets guy by background. When I hear the word operational, I get a little nervous. I feel risk. I feel labor costs. I feel that it might diminish the value of my building. Andrew, how do you address the fact that operational may bring in a layer of uncertainty to landlords. Well, when I think of operational, I actually, my mind, and I'm a former COO, so I'm all about operations. I think of integration and bringing different parts of the asset together. And so let's just pick a few, right? Um, if there's a HANA in your building and we would normally staff that with three or four uh, high quality hospitality individuals and there's a general manager, but we also have a property management team that's on site that has a lot of capabilities around marketing and doing things. And then there's all different parts of reception and concierge. So while I do think operational intensity is absolutely increasing and it's going to be a more and more of a requirement, it doesn't necessarily translate to more cost if it's done right. And I How do you go to a landlord and say, I want you to put HANA in my building versus putting something else in my building. What is the value proposition that says not only am I going to have happier tenants, but my building is going to be worth more? What do yeah. you say to that? Now, look, I'd love to go toe to toe with you on how capital markets uh, realizes value in an asset and cap rates, but I'm not going to go there because I know you. What I am going to do, though, is take it from a perspective of the demand, because I'm, I, I believe in free markets and the demand will drive the end result no matter what. And the demand right now from the Fortune 1000, the clients that you're talking about, that every landlord, every investor wants in their building long term, those clients are requiring a certain portion of flexible space and amenitized offerings. So the question really is, how do, how do you address that? And how, as a landlord, can you incorporate that in the safest model? 
I would never recommend, at least at this stage of the life cycle, that entire buildings are flexible. There's different viewpoints, even within our own team, that that might be a great model. Where we see the most value is 10, 20, 25% of an asset having these flexible offerings that really gives that overflow, that ability to attract the sticky long-term tenant and drive some value for the overall asset. I just want to add something to that. I had a conversation with a with a large enterprise occupier a couple of weeks ago and they said they were looking for a building in a major market in the US and it was a requirement of that building for their long-term lease that they had a flex provider in that building. And it was a requirement because they are thinking about the world changing and recognizing that utilization and occupancy is gonna be considerably more dynamic. And they're saying, we are not gonna take enough space for peak demand. We wanna take enough space for average demand. On an average day, 60% of our people show up. We're gonna take enough space to accommodate the 60% who do show up. And on the peak days or on the days that go over average, we wanna know that there's a place in our building that can act as a release valve for that. We're gonna send them down to, in this case, HANA, and we're gonna let them touch down in that space. We're gonna use it as overflow meeting space. They're still signing the long-term lease. They just wanna use that as a truly useful amenity in that building to manage the volatility in show-up rate, utilization, you know, requirements for different kinds of spaces. So not only are you breaking out of the traditional definition of your office space, you also are blurring the definition of what is office space into what I might call hotelization or live, work, play. How do those concepts play into HANA, Andrew? Well, um, I think there's a couple of key things here. When, when we go out and look at our footprint, and certainly that's guided by relationships with large institutional uh, owners around the globe, but one of the first things we look for in a portfolio opportunity is where, where are the live, work, play environments? And why do we do that? Well, one of our units out in uh, Orange County, California uh, called Park Place, it's with LBA Realty, beautiful campus, and it has you know, over a couple thousand multifamily units that surround the perimeter. It has a great ecosystem of restaurants, fitness clubs, hotels, everything's right there. And what do we then see? We see an ecosystem of the two-person startup all the way to the publicly traded biopharma company that wants to have engineering teams within HANA. You get the full life cycle of attracting into the campus environment because there's actually a, a, a live, work, play environment. And one other thing on this, it actually extends into what I think is a great opportunity in retail. Obviously, retail has gone through many iterations. You've talked about this plenty on, on various shows. What we see in the retail environment is everything's already there. So whether it's office in a traditional sense, whether it's retail, maybe even industrial someday, what really we look for is that environment that surrounds it, whether it's in the building or right around it, that fuels what occupiers are looking for because we're all, we're all humans. We want to have a great experience that doesn't feel like work. And when you put yourself in that environment, it, it delivers. You mentioned a campus. I'm just going to say the city, dense urban locations. So what's the future of that? And how does HANA and Flex play into that? Georgia, what do you think? I think despite all of the predictions that the city is dead, that um, there are a lot of people who may be disappointed <laughs> I think big cities are here to stay. I think they play an important role in our lives, and, but also our work lives in particular. 
Um, and I think that, you know, everyone kind of is quoting this idea that, oh, it's the hub and spoke model and, you know, we're going to move where there's going to be this flight to the suburbs. Well, in a hub and spoke model, you still need a hub and cities are the best places to put hubs. That place will continue to be a really important place as a kind of magnet for people from all over a particular metro area or a talent catchment area, maybe is the better way to say it. Andrew, same question to you, but I'm going to add a wrinkle to it. So the same question, the future of cities. But second, I know that you have three locations for HANA in London. How does a city like London compare to the Orange County location that you just mentioned a moment ago? Yeah, great question, because our strategy in London, which is similar to what we're doing in, in the major metros in, uh, in the United States, is we want to cover the city so you can have choices of where to be. I like to call this the, the portfolio of options for your work portfolio. At, at, at Zipcar, we had a transportation portfolio. You take a Zipcar, you take public trans, you might take an Uber, you might catch a plane, you might catch a train, and you had all these options. When we think of real estate, and particularly flexible space, I want to have options. So my hub, my headquarters, is at Three World Trade in the financial district. It is our flagship. It's where we're going to be as a team. And there are going to be specific times, days where we have to be there. But we're also building a HANA in Berkeley Heights, New Jersey, which I happen to live in the suburbs of New Jersey. And guess what? That's a nice little car ride for me, and it's quick. And if I can pop in and have a couple meetings there and then be home to see my eight-year-old play baseball at five o'clock, I'm going to want to do that. But I still get a similar experience in that HANA versus the one in financial district. And then I can also have some flexibility to work from home potentially, and I travel a lot. I think every employee, every manager, every leader, all the way up to the CEO is going through that thought process right now to say, I need my hubs, I need my city footprint. What else do I need to augment that? And let's make this a great experience for all of our teams. To your London question, very quickly. Uh, when you walk into uh, one of our units in London, whether it's 70 St. Mary Axe, uh, a beautiful building owned by Naveen, or whether it's uh, at, uh, St. Martin's Court, uh, and, and all the way out to the west side uh, where we have Hammersmith, what we've done is given a nice option that we've spread three locations across London that occupiers have a choice, and we've strategically placed them along the tube lines. And that's really how we address the needs in a city, but make sure we cover more than a city, which some could start to argue that it starts to hit the fringe on the suburban metros. Just, just an added point on that. I, I think in talking to our enterprise clients, when they say they want to be in London, they don't just say they want to be in London and any location will do. They want to be in a particular part of London. And, you know, we think about kind of clusters within cities and, you know, they, this is where the tech companies are. This is where the financial services companies are. This is where the professional services companies are. We're really trying to appeal to that broad, broad base of occupier clients, not just one industry, because we anticipate that really across the board, almost all industries will adopt flex in some form. And so we want to be in the locations where they are, not just in the locations where, you know, the early adopters are. But Andrew also mentioned uh, he wants to be where his kids are, which is near his home. But let me ask the demographic question. Some people might suggest, oh, flex spaces for Gen Zers or uh, younger millennials. How do you react to that, Andrew? Well, uh, by the way, I'm the oldest age you can be for a millennial, so I, uh, I can still qualify. Um, but what I would say is most people actually want a similar experience within their office environment. They may use it differently, but I've seen time and time again, we try to place people in demographical boxes for what will be most important to them. 
and somewhere on the continuum, it starts to navigate towards the middle that they want a little bit of this and a little bit of that, but it's very similar. Um, but Georgia is deep in this world. I rely on her brain for this, and I want her to answer. I think we've wasted so much time on talking about generations in the workplace. I mean, when I when I started my career, there were four generations in the workplace. There are four generations now. I mean, it's just different a different four. Like the traditionalists aged out, and now we have those years. The fact is, is we have young people, middle-aged people, and older people. And their needs vary more based on life stage than they do on what year they were born. I mean, if you want to translate that, fine. But I think that... Um, I think that choice and variety is really the key. And Andrew just hit the nail on the head there. Like everyone wants a little bit of everything and they want the flexibility to have it when they want it. And they might want it at different times and they might want it in slightly different proportions. But the idea that like an entire generation of people want exactly the same thing at the same time and that's different from you know someone who's a year or two older or younger than them, I just reject completely. Well, Georgia, I appreciate your strong opinion on that, but I'm disappointed in your answer because there aren't four generations now. There are five. If you read CBRE's 2030 report, which I did has, read a that. has AI as the fifth generation, but then there's the lost generation, which is Gen X, which is my generation. Me too. Now, I'm a Gen Xer too. See you that? And I have we that don't get any love. And <laughs> we never get any love. Here on the weekly The only take, love we've gotten in this pandemic is everyone says we're good at staying home. Oh, there you go. You see that? Well, Gen Xers are more than good at just staying home, and thank you for that, Georgia. So let's talk about another area that I think about a lot for workplace strategy, and that is the distinction between productivity and efficiency. And I can't tell you how many people have said, oh, this work-from-home thing makes people more productive. My point of view is, no, it doesn't. It may make you more efficient, but not necessarily more productive if that's all you do. And I think that this agility may get you there. What do you think, Andrew? Yeah, you know, George and I have had plenty of conversations uh, about this topic. But, you know, efficiency at its extremes actually makes you less productive. It certainly makes you less creative. It makes innovation sometimes stifle. It doesn't allow the room for failure. It's just all about tight efficiency, right? And I think my opinion on this, I think Georgia uh, agrees with me. We've skewed a bit more towards, probably too much, towards this efficiency category within the real estate sector. You know, what, you can equate that into a lot of different metrics. When we think about how we translate that into our business and our product with HANA, we like to focus around productivity being driven from helping teams accomplish things. So it's real hard to measure, and I don't want to get into a real measurement of it. What we want to get into is if you're gonna accomplish great things, you need certain tools and you need a certain environment. And by nature, you can just correlate, there will be happier, more productive workforce if they get what they need. It's as simple as that to me, and I'm usually uh, X's and O's, show me the productivity levels, show me what I can do to get another five points of that. But this is just one category where you need a little bit of slack to be able to grow the business and create a real innovation arm of the world. Georgia, what do you think? I agree. I mean, I, I think that one of the challenges, and I actually, I feel like in a way, corporate real estate teams have kind of gotten an unfair shake on this because as cost centers themselves, they only control the cost side of this equation. And so it's natural to think that that's what they would look for in driving efficiency because in fact, they don't really control the productivity side of the business. That's managed by other people. Um, and so in a way, we're not, 
We're not thinking about this equation in an equal parts way. This is a really difficult thing to measure, that we shouldn't hold our real estate teams accountable for driving productivity if they don't control how to do that and or don't know how the business actually thinks about productivity in the first place. If we want to get better at kind of being able to talk about the value we create when we create great places with great experiences that attract good talent, that create you know collaboration that lead, leads to innovation or however you want to measure that. Um, we need a partnership on both sides to drive that conversation and define what good looks like or what great looks like in any one organization. Well, let me put a uh, stamp on that answer because uh, Harvard Business Review said, great companies focus on productivity, not efficiency. And so... Uh, I wish that becomes gospel. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, that is that is how we've approached it, and that's how most occupiers that we talk to have, are approaching it. But now that I've given a shout-out to productivity, I have to pivot back for just a moment because I need to talk about data. Is data the new oil? And I know in the workplace we have different forms of sensors of how long people are in space, uh, able to control temperature, maybe able to control the air coming out of the machines coming in the future. But the question is, is that going to improve the workplace experience being so close to the data, number one? And number two, do you have any privacy considerations? Listen, data, I think, is a version of the new oil. I mean, it, it, there's not a conversation that we have uh, with clients that the data side doesn't come up. What we think there's big opportunity to improve the experience around data is more around personalization, more around relevant experiences that matter on a location basis or on a work group basis. In fact, we just had a call with a client this morning that was really focused on, I wanna make sure the right work groups are seeing the right things, whether it's in the piece of technology we provide them or how our service teams interact with them. So all of that can be fueled by data, certainly how we design the space, how we keep it safe. But this privacy conversation is really interesting because we've, we've made a concerted effort within HANA to not over-engineer the data we could collect. There's a lot of things we could do and a lot of things that we leave out, but we're only measuring things that we know occupiers are comfortable with and that we can provide them the data that they're gonna think is most relevant. We're not tracking down to every movement of every person and really getting into an area where I think you can go a bit too far on what you wanna actually collect within data. But there is a huge opportunity, it's only gonna get bigger. Georgia, what do you think? I think the challenge that we have with data, particularly in the real estate industry, is that there's lots of it and there's potential to collect lots more of it. And just because we collect it doesn't mean that we actually need all of it. And so the thing that we need to do when we, when we talk about data is actually be better and more thoughtful about what questions we're asking. Uh, what do we really want to know? And then collect the data that will help us get to those answers. I feel like we spent a lot of time in the last several years focused on data that validates or kind of proves things that we think we probably already know, as opposed to like occupancy as an example. I could tell you on any given day that not everyone shows up to the office just by kind of taking a walk around. But we've been so attached to like being able to prove it that we've spent tons of time and money to collect data to prove something that everyone kind of knows when they walk take a turn through the office. I think benchmarking is the same. I had a um, former employer and mentor who was famous for saying that, um, that benchmarking is like comparing yourself to mediocrity. Um, we are always looking, you know, we're always looking back, we're always looking sideways, like what's Spencer doing, what's Andrew doing, you know, who's the guy across the street, what's he doing? 
And that actually doesn't move us forward in terms of doing what's right for us or even innovating on top of that. And so we'd be better to be more specific about the questions we're asking in a forward-looking direction and then target the data that will help us get there. Well, certainly the data gets more complicated today when your workplace isn't just the traditional office, it's the flex office and your home. And I can assure you that privacy considerations uh, get even greater there. But this is the last question. This is the crystal ball portion of today's conversations. What in the next 10 years is going to be the single biggest innovation to the workspace? And what will be the biggest dud? Something that everybody says is going to be great, just not going to get there. Andrew. Yeah, I love these type of questions. So, again, with my affinity towards transportation and that world and how that certainly has impacts, um, you know, one of the things I, I think you're seeing a, a little bit of evidence right now with the COVID environment and how we're dealing with public streets, access for restaurants to have outdoor dining, and really local cities all the way to, uh, you know, large scale governments thinking about zoning and legislation and how do we make this a safer environment, but keep industry thriving, particularly around restaurants, as I mentioned. I think that's the start of how should we be thinking about mass deployment of autonomous vehicles, self-driving vehicles, because there still is this massive opportunity that cities want to decongest, they want to get more cars off the road and make more of the usage of city with green space, but at the same time, you need a method to move people around and you need transportation. So I think you're going to see massive acceleration, zoning changes, a lot of different things that will help fuel that overall autonomous driving and, and self-driving. So what does that mean for the implications on real estate? That's the big question. And I might be in the minority here, but I think it fuels massive influx into cities because knowing that there is a fleet of self-driving taxis 24-7 that can take me anywhere I need to go in a safe manner really opens up your options of where you go, how you go. So I actually think it's going to be great for the overall real estate industry within cities. But again, lots to figure out there. Well, let's go to the second part of that question, the uh, what's not going to come. And I might argue that flying vehicles, whether it be a drone or a flying car, uh, have been promised to me since the Jerry Lewis movies of the 1950s. Uh, will that come or will that be the, the dud that doesn't happen, Andrew? I, I do not think in my lifetime I will get on a Jetsons flying vehicle uh, and travel over lower Manhattan. But um, I'll, I'll tell you, here's one dud, though, that I just when I think about commercial real estate, um, and I don't mean to pick on any specific use case or industry, but large scale cafeterias within work environments, to me, just there's such an opportunity for the future of how do you contextualize and really rethink food and beverage within the workspace and, you know, localize it, make it more technology enabled and get into a utilization pattern that's going to meet how people actually work in the future. And, it, you know, it's something that's going to be interesting on how that changes within large buildings. Georgia, same question to you. Biggest hit and the biggest uh, I was trying to think of an artist that was a flame out of next vanilla ice. I'm going to start with the duds because I want to end on a high note. So, I, I mean, I, I think that we risk overcorrecting based on what's going on right now. You know, we're kind of all doing this hand wringing right now. Oh, this flight from the cities to the suburbs 
everyone's going to work from home forever. You know, we've actually been here before. There was a phase of this before and we swung back the other way. And so I think we need to be careful not to overcorrect and underinvest in the things or the places or the people that we need to kind of have that complete ecosystem and network. Like whether that is, you know, an overcorrection towards the suburbs from a from a portfolio perspective, an overcorrection towards all meetings being virtual and trying to optimize for everything being virtual rather than recognizing that some things really are done better face to face and optimizing for that. I just think that we need to be careful not to kind of take this moment in time and read too much into it before we kind of let things settle down a little. So my dud would be maybe a, the hysteria around overcorrection. On the innovation, kind of the things that are, I think will be really important and, and big ideas, I think we are just scratching the surface when we talk about uh, dynamic utilization or occupancy. And so I hope in the next 10 years, we will have really good technology that will not just say when I walk in the door um, where I should sit based on where there's availability or where I should sit based on um, where my team is, but instead where I should sit based on what I'm working on, who I am, what kind of perspective I bring to the table. To me, going back to the, the earlier conversation around productivity, Spencer, one of the things that I've spent a lot of time reading and listening to is the idea that a diversity of perspectives and viewpoints and expertise, when you put them together, is really what drives great innovation. And the more different, the better. And so if we're really, as organizations, wanting to focus on driving greater productivity through innovation, then we need people to get out of their little comfort zone, um, whether that's within their department or their function or their floor or whatever it is, and connect with other people. I don't think we do a good enough job today in that from a technology perspective or even from an, in an analog way of connecting disparate parts of the organization in ways that move ideas forward faster. Well, it's funny you mentioned that, Georgia, because I remember when I took my job as head of research six, seven years ago, I said, you don't need a head of research. You need a chief connect the dots officer. Yeah. And that person will add a lot of value, and I think it still applies uh, to the workspace and a lot of other areas within our world. So well done, Georgia. And on behalf of the Weekly Take, I want to thank two of my great friends and two of the great visionaries of the workspace, uh, the leader of HANA, Andrew Kubek. Andrew, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Spencer. And Georgia Collins, Executive Vice President of Client Solutions. Georgia, thank you. Highlight of my week, Spencer.